Welcome to Cureleaf, a medical marijuana dispensary. Whether you're a longtime patient or you're just getting acquainted with this incredible plant, Cureleaf of Pennsylvania is honored to guide you along your medical marijuana journey. Everyone and welcome to the Blue White Breakdown, Penn Labs Penn State Football Podcast. My name is Daniel Gallon, and I'm joined today by Dave Jones. Dave, how are you doing today? Daniel, that was very good. It was like one of the student intro, introdu, introductions on Weatherworld. You know, when the, the Penn State kids get on there, that was fantastic. Well, when it was I, very organized and orderly, and you you welcomed the audience and you looked straight into the camera. It was really good. Keep I, keep at it. Keep going, man. I got to put this uh, University of Maryland diploma to work somehow. <laughs> uh, we've got a couple topics uh, to cover today on the Blue White Breakdown. But first, I wanted to remind you uh, that you can get the Blue White Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. We're also on, on uh, YouTube at youtube.com slash State. Uh, and just as a brief introduction, uh, I'm Daniel Gallen. Uh, you've probably seen my byline on penlive.com over the past few years. Uh, I'm about to start my first season full-time on the Penn State beat. Looking forward to it. Uh, and you're probably going to be hearing my voice a little bit more, reading my words a little bit more. So feel free to give me a shout on email or on Twitter at uh, Daniel J.T. Gallen. Uh, Dave, we're six weeks away uh, from the season opener at Wisconsin, less than six weeks away. Uh, but most of the chatter has been about the recruiting trail, uh, off the field stuff. Uh, Penn State got its latest uh, four-star commitment from Cam Miller uh, on Monday. Two more guys could come into the fold over the next couple of days, 10 commits so far in July. From your perspective, what have you made uh, about this month on the recruiting trail that James Franklin and his staff have put together? If you know anything about me, you know, I know nothing about recruiting. I just read what you write. I, I, uh, I read what everyone writes. I look at the videos uh, more, than, more than I used to because I think these recruiting ratings now compared to 20 years ago when Phil Gross was pretty much running everything. Do you know who Phil Gross is? You probably don't even know who he is, do you? Probably not. I don't no, think so. Yeah. Well, any any Penn State fan of a certain age knows who Phil Gross was because Phil and my old partner who preceded Bob uh, 20 years ago and prior named Ronnie Chris, they used to run this industry around Penn State. Nobody else did it. Ronnie would find out the recruiting lists ahead of time and print them and Joe Paterno would go bonkers. He hated it. Because he thought that was privileged information. It was proprietary and no one had the right to do that. And he went to war with Ronnie about this stuff. But there wasn't any tape. There was no access. I mean, the, the tape there was, we didn't have access to. Kids didn't play each other. They didn't compete in seven on sevens or camps or any of that. So you didn't really know how good they were. And you would you would get a few guys who are labeled five stars. You would see them. I mean, I remember, I'm not going to name names, but I mean, I remember seeing a couple of these guys at the uh, big 33 game and thinking, this guy's not even going to play. He's not going to play, let alone be a, he's not a five star. And then you'd see other guys who look like LeVar Arrington and you were going, that guy, that guy's going to be a star. Uh, but it was very hit or miss. Now it's almost all hits simply because of the exposure. 
So you, it, at the very least, kids who are labeled four and five stars, you can see anyone, anyone who can see, can see they have talent. Now, whether they uh, extrapolate that into something more with everything else you need to be a star at a major con conference level in college, that's something else. Uh, but I have a question for you. How mm -hmm. do you interpret this big bounce back? I mean, I haven't looked at the 24-7 ratings, but they must be back up to like number two or even maybe number they're, they th they're not threatening Ohio State, so they can't be number one. But are they back up to number two? Yeah, they're number two right now. And when you look at the when you look at the class numbers, they have 22 commits, uh, which is the most in the nation tied with Boston College. Um, last week, Dustin Hawkinsmith did a good piece for us about how when you look at the average recruit rating, you know, once Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, you know, they only have they're in the lower teens in terms of numbers. So once they start to fill up, you know, Penn State will probably start to fall down a little bit, but but not too much. I mean, they'll, they'll no, drop they, down to five or six and that's pretty damn good, especially where they came from last year. Now, I've got my own idea of why this has happened with them this recruiting season. Uh, where it didn't last year. What do you think? I mean, I think a big thing you have to look at is the the in-person aspect. You know, I know that James Franklin likes to talk about how he's an in-person guy, likes to be around people. Um, and he's talked about it a lot. Especially I like to say hi. I like to hug. Yep. I mean, I'm, I'm that kind of guy. <laughs> yeah. So I think that that's, you know, getting kids on campus, being able to be in person with them. I think that that has been a big boost, but at the same time, uh, last a couple of weeks ago, they got a commitment from a cornerback from Louisiana named Jordan Allen, who's a three-star, and he committed without even visiting campus. Uh, he's going to come up for the whiteout in, in September. Uh, I talked to him about that, and he said that Terry Smith, James Franklin, uh, the, the relationships that they built um, – was you know that was something he really trusted and he complimented the the virtual recruiting aspects and the different zooms and the videos and kind of how they were really able to to show campus so you know i think that that kind of shows that they learned from last year but i think a big piece of it has been getting kids into state college uh getting kids on campus and the other thing is unless you live in new orleans why would you want to live in louisiana <laughs> If LSU's not calling, you know, you should probably look elsewhere. <laughs> I mean, I'd live in State College if I had to live in Louisiana. Um, now, uh, do you do you see this continuing? You're you're much more into recruiting than I am. Do you see this recruiting uh, this this sort of level continuing through the the early signing date, which is now what is it, December seventh? What is it now? I don't know the exact date, but sometimes first week of December, right? Yeah, that's when it'll it'll become official. Um, so Penn State has two more targets that are scheduled to announce uh, later this week uh, on Thursday. Christian Driver, a uh, four-star safety wide receiver from uh, Texas, familiar name to some people. He's the son of Donald Driver, uh, who James Franklin coached uh, with the Packers in 2005. Uh, fun fact: I did see that team play that Packers team play in person. Uh, they lost 48 to three uh, to the Ravens on Monday night football. It was, it was not a fun game. Um, and then on Saturday, three-star Kevin Winston from DeMatha is scheduled to announce. Both players are expected to pick Penn State. So once they get to that point, they'll be at 24 and in the class. And so things will be pretty filled up. 
and there won't really be that much place to add. So I think that things will quiet down after this month. You know, maybe there will be some shuffling uh, as time goes on, but I think that now the you kind of turn the focus to 2023 and even 2024. Uh, Penn State got their first 2023 or their second first 2023 commitment earlier this month in Alex Birchmeyer, who's a four-star offensive lineman from Northern Virginia. So I think that the momentum is there. And I think now the the key will be to kind of flip it over into from 2022 into 2023, you know, once we get into August and beyond. Yeah, if they can get driver, um, and when's he going to commit? Do, do we know Thursday? Is that what? Thursday at 3 p.m. All right. So that's tomorrow. Um, they get a kid from Texas and a kid from Florida who are both that good. That's a pretty good indicator that they're, they're making some inroads in a place where Penn State sometimes does, but, but doesn't always. And, and everyone in the North is now, we're shifting over the topic, uh, battling this, this, uh, this Death Star that we are going to call the SEC. Now that Texas and Oklahoma are in it, it is a, I don't even know what you want to call it. It's, 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 it's an empire they're trying to build. And it's going to be imposing and it's going to be full of so much money because the TV contract is going to, I think it's going to be 66 million when the next one kicks in. God knows what the one after that's going to be. I mean, it's going to be massive. That would be 66 million per school let uh, uh, payout every single year. Whereas uh, I believe the Big Ten's last one was 53. Uh, It's only going to get bigger. And they're looking to pull away from the Big Ten where they haven't really before fiscally. Um, and what, what was your first reaction when you heard about Texas and Oklahoma? Uh, not, not necessarily just about the ramifications, but as a fan, uh, you, grew up, you grew up in Maryland, right? Yes. Well, it's, you know, that's the, that's the question to me. Does the ACC pivot toward the Big Ten out of fear? or pivot toward the SEC out of more fear. I don't know. I don't know which they do, but that's essentially a basketball conference. It has been forever. It's tobacco road. Uh, They haven't had to think about survival before because it wasn't, it wasn't such an issue. I think it is now. I think the ACC needs to partner with one or the other. And it's just a question of whether Kevin Warren moves before Greg Sankey and Judging by what we've seen from Kevin Warren so far, I would say advantage Sankey. And if if the SEC can partner with ACC in some sort of scheduling agreement or, God help us, a a complete um, acquisition of the entire league and a true super conference, uh, that's that's the big question. And if if that happens, I don't I don't even know where the sport goes because everyone else will truly be on on an island outside of anything south of the Mason-Dixon line or east of the Rockies. And that's scary. It's scary. Anyway. Welcome to Cureleaf, a medical marijuana dispensary. Whether you're a longtime patient or you're just getting acquainted with this incredible plant, Cureleaf of Pennsylvania is honored to guide you along your medical marijuana journey. Have questions? Visit us at cureleaf.com or stop in to see us at any of our 12 locations. Let's talk medical marijuana 
and let our confidence become yours. Yeah, I mean, my first reaction to the news was thinking about kind of how everything is consolidating now, even when you look at it beyond, uh, beyond college football. Uh, you know, there's less options, you know, there's just less and less kind of different varieties of things out there. Everything is kind of merging together. Um, and I think when you look at it from the, the college football perspective, the thing that I kind of bemoan as a fan is kind of losing these different brands of football. Yeah, you know, I feel like for, you know, the 2000s into the 2010s, when you tuned in to watch a Big 12 game, you knew what you were going to get. Not a lot of defense, some exciting offense, and some, you know, some teams that weren't necessarily the best, but teams that were really fun to watch. And that's something that I valued a lot as a fan. Not, not a lot of defense, but, but they were entertaining. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was you, you like when I was in college, I instead of going to a Maryland football game, I would stay home uh, and, you know, read, do some work. And in the background, they'd have a random Oklahoma State Baylor game on, you know, I don't know, Texas Tech, TCU, something like that. Those air raid days, those air raid days with Mike Leach, man, uh, that was did you ever read Swing Your Sword by Bruce Feldman? Did we talk yeah. about that? Was that you was talking about that yesterday? Yep. Yeah. I yeah. mean, a, a really a, a remarkable book before we knew what a expletive Mike Leach really is. But I mean, as a football mind, I, I was a big proponent. And if, if it, it was, it was really a dive into what made uh, the, the Art Bryles uh, kind of how mummy school work down there and they were kind of two divergent schools but they both had the same idea is is basically the old raiders of the 60s and daryl and monica throw it deep as many times as possible and stretch that defense mess with those safeties and if you hit some you only have to hit a few you hit a few big ones and it has an effect and it wore teams out and you didn't have to play it that often if you were in the north. But if you got a hold of one of those teams down there and you were suddenly facing that sort of offense, it was different and it was scary. It was frightening. It was a different kind of football. And, yeah, they didn't play much defense and they didn't tackle very well. But it was a, you know, it was different. And I, to your point, homogenization of college football can't be good. Um, and if, if we've got a couple or three or even four giant leagues and the, there's no more Big 12 and there's not going to be any more Big 12 in one way or another, I mean, I, I guess they could, not as a major conference, I, I could see all those Big 12 schools basically kind of acquiring a lot of the AAC schools and making a go of it. And maybe it will be the same sort of style because Memphis has always been kind of that style. Houston has been that kind of style. Uh, Cincinnati, not so much, but, but maybe if they fold into the league, it can survive and it'll kind of be a middle, middle American league. Louisiana tech was like that for a while. Mm -hmm. um, that's possible, but you're never going to be able to consider it a major conference. And I don't know if they're going to get games. Uh, as I wrote in a column, uh, yesterday, the day before, I think the idea for the Big Ten and the ACC and the Pac-12 is to play each other as much as possible and play major conference games 
And that means some sort of consortium and agreement where they're playing non-conference games at least twice, maybe three times a year before they get into the league schedule. Well, will that be tough on their players and their coaches? Absolutely. It'll be tough. Uh, but they're going to have to do it to remain relevant, I, I'm afraid. Um, and if there's one giant league that, that is formed south of the Mason-Dixon, man, God help us, because that's not going to be good for anyone. It's not going to be good for college football. It'll regionalize college football more than it already is. And we're already seeing it mm -hmm. kind of veer in that direction. So <laughs> in kind of that, that idea of, uh, you know, some sort of scheduling partnership, you know, between Big Ten, ACC, Pac-12, some, some combination of that, what kind of, what games would you want to see, you know, from oh my God. who would There's you want to see Penn State play? See, you know? uh, yeah, I I, unlike many Penn State fans, I grew up with the Rose Bowl and the Big Ten playing the Pac-12. That were, Back then, the Pac-8 was mm. a big deal. Uh, then Arizona and Arizona State got in. It was the Pac-10. It was always exotic, and you're flying across the country. And I loved those games. I loved on the, on occasion, Penn State has played like Oregon State. They went out and played. Uh, Mike Riley's Oregon State team came in and played. Um, they they, they uh, uh, they played Arizona in 99. <laughs> those are, those are fun games, man. Um, a couple of the big 10 schools have played Oregon pretty regularly. Of course, everyone would want it. Can you imagine? And uh, they played USC, I think in 94, the year they went 12 and 0 uh, USC came in here and that was a continuation of a series. They started uh, 91. We were out there at, at the LA Coliseum. By the way, it's the last time I smoked in a press box. <laughs> you, you, and I haven't smoked in a long time, but back then it's, it's 30 years ago this fall. Mm -hmm. And you could smoke in the LA Coliseum press box. So was I, was, I, wasn't even, I wasn't even born yet uh, <laughs> when you did that. It was open air open air and uh it was quite an experience it was kind of down there close to south central and not a very not a very good area of la it's that it had a little bit in common with the orange bowl in miami which was definitely not a good area but those when penn state was an independent i think people miss those games because there were so many more opportunities to have big intersectional games we went out to brigham young in 92 mm -hmm. um USC in 91, Miami in 91. Uh, there were always opportunities because the whole schedule was independent. Uh, when they got into the Big Ten, those opportunities ceased, almost all of them. You might get one good intersectional game per year, and that was it. I think the fans would love it if they do start playing more of these games. Uh, it would pump interest so much. Can you imagine like Oregon coming in into here or Penn State going out to Washington and playing, you know, on the on the bay, on the Pacific out there with the boats coming in. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is this is great stuff. Or even uh, I mean, Arizona State is not like a or Arizona. Those places are not exactly football um, giants. Yeah. They don't yeah. value football that much. Uh, but even going out to those places would be so much fun. And P, I think people would love it. Uh, going to Utah, going to Colorado. Have you ever been to Boulder? I mean, that that's yeah. just the yeah. coolest, coolest town. Uh, I, the, I can't even imagine really why 
Colorado doesn't get every recruit. <laughs> you could get them to visit. I don't know how they lose anybody, including all the kids from LA, which, you know, the kids from LA basically, and, and Samoa and Hawaiians basically support the entire, uh, the entirety of the PAC 12. Uh, mm-hmm. They got to hope to keep their kids home, which, and they've been losing them to the SEC too. So this is, this is all intermingled. Mm-hmm. Um, what'd you think of the, uh, Simone Biles thing. Yeah. And Lydia Jacoby. How about Lydia Jacoby? That wasn't that, wasn't that, I was watching when that happened. That was fantastic. The little girl from Arkansas, from uh, Alaska. Yeah. I was watching. That was actually the Lydia Lydia Jacoby race was the first night that I'd really tuned in uh, to watch the Olympics. And so that was, that was fun. And that's kind of the, the thing where as, as cynical as you feel about the whole operation and as kind of hard as it is to kind of want to watch it want to consume this that was one of the moments where you can kind of let that fall away a little bit and kind of be like oh yeah this is um you know this is why i'm watching it um and kind of the the same thing with watching ledecky in the 1500 uh last night you know sitting there for you know 15 20 minutes just watching someone who is the best in the world at what they do that's just kind of where you can just kind of let every all the other noise kind of fall away. And and my my buddy Pat Forty, who I've known forever, his kid Brooke, his daughter Brooke, uh, anchored one of the relays that just went off uh, a couple hours ago when they won. I think it was mm-hmm. the eight hundred meter. Um, and I am, I guess, and. I can't even imagine the stress. Can you imagine watching your own kid and supposedly being there covering it? He writes for Sports Illustrated. Mm-hmm. He's supposed to be covering the Olympics, but during that race, how can you, <laughs> what, what do you do? So he just had a picture. He just posted a picture on Twitter of him doing the post-race interview with Brooke, his daughter, who's like ecstatic. She has a gold medal um, of, of all of his kids. I believe he has two sons have been terrific competitive swimmers, but this is the pinnacle. Uh, it's so cool to see this for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Lydia Jacoby thing was very cool because I, I ended up talking to a kid who works for the NBC affiliate in Anchorage last night. It was like two in the morning here. It was 10 p.m. out there. I had texted him like 12 hours earlier, but, you know, he, he, he was scrambling all day and getting in a story on this, this event. And he drove. 200 miles down to Seward, uh, which is down on the, the South Central Bay from Anchorage to cover this for the last three days and talk to the entire town, the little town of Seward, Alaska, which is where you get off to take uh, when there were cruise liners, uh, you'd get them to, to you'd, you'd actually catch them there. And there's an Amtrak line that comes in there. Well, they, they had a watch party in the train station. Mm-hmm. And all of these people, if you saw the video of all those people, that's where they were. They were in the town train station. <laughs> and this kid, he was 28. I mean, he's your age and he's doing one of the great stories, the great Olympic stories ever, because Lydia Jacoby was, they were hoping she would medal. They thought she might be able to medal. They were not expecting her to beat, uh, uh, who was Lily, Lily, what was her? Lily what King. Was her yeah. And that girl was the the world record holder, the defending Olympic champion from Rio. This was not supposed to happen. And mm-hmm. you can see that crowd get more and more charged up. It's only a hundred meter race. It's, it's a lap back and it's lap black. 
the other way. And they're ecstatic. They can't believe what they're seeing. And it's the whole town. It's the whole Mm -hmm. town. That is what the Olympics are about. Um, It was really cool to see. And there were no expectations on her. Uh, Mm -hmm. She's 17 now. If she decides to keep competing, she'll be 21 at the next Olympics. And there will be all sorts of expectations on her. And the NBC uh, hype machine will arrive and document every inch of her life for the three or four months leading up to the Olympics. It's just not as much fun, man. It's it's so much mm-hmm. so much easier to do it without expectations. It's it's always yeah. It's it always seems like that the person who who comes out of nowhere, the person who doesn't get the the soft focus uh, feature. It's, it's <laughs> soft just... focus. You're talking about <laughs> sensitive Tom Rinaldi there. Yes, soft focus. Yes. Uh, it's just it just seems like that. It's tinkling it's... piano music. Yes. Yeah, oboe it's... music. Yes. It's just it's easier for them. Yeah. Uh, it seems like, and that the when you put the pressure and you know when you put the the expectation of an entire country and, and a world on someone, it's you know I don't envy uh, being being in that position. Yeah. Well. Um... I guess we're out of time, right? I, I'm, I've got some, uh, I've got a, I did an interview, a short interview, shorter than I would with Kirk Herbstreet about mm-hmm. his book. So I'm writing that for tomorrow. Uh, the book is really surprisingly good. Uh, yeah. Gene Bojowski ghost wrote it. It's called Out of the Pocket. Um, I've got, I got one question for you about yeah. it as maybe as a little tease for what you'll write about it. You know, Herb Street is someone that any college football fan has had a lot of exposure to. I'm sure certain people have polarizing feelings about him. I'm sure for others, he's just kind of part of the wallpaper of, of college football now. Uh, how would someone reading this book, how might it change how they, they view him or what would kind of be their impression of him? He, I think Penn State fans pretty much like him because they can tell that A, he's totally impartial when it comes to college football. He just loves college football. And then he loves the Ohio State Buckeyes for whom he quarterbacked 29 years ago mm-hmm. in kind of a forgettable season. It, he writes about that and how painful it was. It reminded me of uh, Josh, my nephew, who had so many ifs during his career. And then it just never quite worked out. In mm-hmm. fact, we talked about that for a little bit. But, but I think in general, what will come through is how much he likes Penn State players, especially. There's quotes in there that I'm going to use for for certain about even when he was a kid and he would see people like uh, DJ Dozier, I think he mentioned, people back in the players back in the 80s interviewed. He just liked them. He thought they carried themselves well. Uh, Of course, he's always talked about the whiteouts and the fans and what a great experience it is uh, at Beaver Stadium. But I, I, I think Penn State fans will love this story. And there's so much in the book that really is honest. I mean, Ohio State fans, a, a lot of the freaks, the 10% weirdos, they disowned him after he said honestly that Michigan played a better game one time. And he had to move. He had mm-hmm. to move to Nashville because the, the, those, those freaks are so weird that they basically – they were telling uh, in, during his kids, he has twins. Uh, he has four sons all together now. But back then when his, uh, his kids were playing football, uh, uh, he would hear coaches on the other sideline said, get that, get that kid. You see that kid? That's Herb Street's kid. I want you to hit him hard. 
you know, especially hard because he was Kirk Herbstreet's kids because he said something nice about Michigan. I mean, that's <laughs> what these freaks do. Uh, he basically had to leave Columbus because of fans like that. So believe me, this guy is totally impartial. He's a complete professional anyway. And I think he's the best analyst uh, maybe in any, you know, what do we have there? Tony Romo and, and uh, Troy Aikman and in any sport, maybe, I mean, Jim Jackson, I think is really good on the NBA. Mm -hmm. um, he's got to be in the conversation for the best analyst in sports and television sports. Uh, but the main thing is the, the book is really, really honest mm -hmm. about his father, which he, he, we didn't have a great relationship with. Uh, it's almost too honest. It's a real page turner in that way. Uh -huh. And he, he also came from humble beginnings, both as a player and as a, uh, a TV personality. I mean, he a hilarious story of how he sweated through his first uh, audition with 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 Chris Fowler back in the mid nineties. I mean, he just didn't think he belonged there. So it's, it's a entertaining book. And uh, I think that'll, I'll, I'll probably write that. I have to write it for tomorrow morning. Mm -hmm. All right. I think we're out of time. Better yep. sign off. Well, that will do it for this week's edition of the blue white breakdown, uh, Penn lives, Penn state football podcast. You can read about Dave and Kirk Herbstreet uh, tomorrow on penlive.com. Uh, and you can find us on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and also on YouTube at youtube.com slash all Penn State. I'm Daniel Gallon for Dave Jones. I'll talk to you next week.